food for the body and food for the soul. Both are encompassed by Christian faith in the gospel, and so having heard about potatoes and some of the food we've grown, we're moving now into what the Holy Spirit will enable to nourish us even more deeply. Good morning, my name is Alex. I am the lead pastor here at Corewright, and it is really good to look out and to see so many of you compared to what we've had in the last couple of weeks when we've been here in the sanctuary, and especially compared to my lonely experience of being solo in front of a camera going back to when we were pre-recording the service. Now, I can see, I can look around and see people this morning, but uh, I'm going to mostly be looking at the camera, which isn't going to smile back at me, but I know that there are more people a lot more people out there streaming the service. But once in a while, I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to flash you a big smile, okay? And then I love that laughter. Glenn Fox is not here today with his booming laugh. Um, we did introduce the Glenn Fox laugh track uh, to help me deal with my loneliness at one point. But uh, I hear your laughter, and that warms my soul. So thank you for that. So today we're continuing in Ephesians, and we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 5 this morning, where we find the most substantial teaching on marriage in the whole New Testament. So we're looking at marriage today, but I'm not only talking to those of you who are married. If you're single, I hope you're going to get a biblical idea of what you should be looking for in your spouse if you do get married. You can't know what to look for if you don't know God's design for marriage. Whether you're married or not, God's goal for you is the same, being more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, he uses different means to get each one of us there, but his goal for us is the same. Marriage and biological family are not ultimate. Christ and his church are ultimate. And we're all called together into a community of mutual submission. And we'll be talking a lot this morning about mutual submission. Earthly marriage is only a shadow of our most ultimate union, which is our union to Jesus Christ. And our biological families point us to our eternal family, the church. And Paul calls this the mystery of marriage. So whether or not you are in a nuclear family or a marriage, what God is ultimately doing in our lives is the same, preparing us for eternal marriage. Christ and our eternal family the church. He's just using different means to get us there. So let's pray before we open our Bibles to Ephesians. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come this morning and to be our teacher. Before the service, I prayed that we would be like clay in your hands, and I pray it again, Lord. Uh, would you shape us and form us into who you want us to be and help us to trust that you want the very best for us and to open ourselves up to your will, to your power, which comes through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we're reading Ephesians from verse 21 of chapter 5 to the end of chapter 5. And I encourage you to either get 
a hard copy of the Bible and open it up to that page or to pull it up on a screen because I will be referring to particular verses and even at one point to what precedes our reading. So that'll help you to have that in front of you. Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And let me stop there for a moment. That one verse is like the heading over what we're going to read in the rest of this passage, but also in what comes next Sunday, what Justin will be preaching on. So you can think of that as being like a chapter heading, as setting the tone for what follows. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, and here Paul's quoting from Genesis chapter 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. That was good for me too, in case you're wondering. So what we learn about marriage here, what Paul's trying to teach us about marriage here in Ephesians 5 is, first of all, what it is, secondly, what it does, third, what it needs, and fourth, what it shows us. Let me say that again. Paul wants us to better understand what marriage is. He's going to give us a definition of marriage. Also, what it does, what its purpose is. Thirdly, what it needs. Marriage is hard. How are we going to actually make this work? And finally, what it shows, because marriage is not ultimate. Marriage points beyond itself. So first of all, what is marriage? Well, Paul goes back to Genesis for a definition of marriage, and if we had more time, we could really unpack what happens in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, but we don't, and so we'll just stick with what Paul gives us. He quotes from Genesis 2:24, saying, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, old translations will say cleave. A man will cleave to his wife. The Hebrew word there basically means covenant, and covenant is a particular thing. Covenant is a deep, personal, and exclusive commitment to another. It's legal and permanent also. The essence of marriage is not a declaration of present love, of the love I feel right now, but rather it's the binding promise of future love, promise to feel warm and loving all the time. Let's be clear. No one can promise that. Christian marriage is covenant, not chemistry. 
And this collides very much with our culture where we hear that marriage is good until it interferes with your personal happiness. Passion requires spontaneity and marriage constricts. It can limit and stifle passion. But I love the way the poet W.H. Auden puts this. He says that any marriage, whether it's happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. Why? Well, because marriage is not the result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will. And so covenant is more interesting than chemistry. Imagine you kissed your wife or your husband today. Does it have the same electrical thrill it did for you 20 years ago or 30 years ago? No, it doesn't. If you say it does, I'm not sure I'm going to believe you. But that's actually a good thing because that thrill was at least partly, if not mostly, about ego. She's into me. You needed that affirmation. It was about you. But to actually love someone else, to be committed to their well-being, is a deeper thrill and a deeper passion. How does that come about? It takes time. You think you're falling in love, but at first, you're really just falling for your idea of that other person. Covenant, rather than chemistry, is the true meaning of life. So next, we're going to ask, what does marriage do? What's its purpose? Well, first of all, it cleanses, and second of all, it supplements. If you look at verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and blameless. What is Christ's purpose in your life? Well, Jesus comes into your life to be a new and living way to the Father, and he comes in to be worshipped. He's also bringing change into your life as he does that. Because spiritually, we are self-centered, and there's an ugliness to that. And he wants to make us spiritually beautiful. And that is the basis of marriage. Your spouse comes into your life not to be your savior, but to partner with the savior to make you the person Christ is making you into. If you ask our culture what's most important about marriage, why do it? People will say that they want someone who will accept them and not try to change them. So why do it then? Well, to enhance myself and my life, to supplement and improve my situation. I'm fine the way I am. So marriage is for companionship, romance, fun, extra income, all of these things, that those things are good, but that they can be better and that they really belong within a bigger picture where you recognize that you're not fine the way you are. You're flawed. You're nowhere close to being the person God created you to be. And when you understand that, you begin to see what God created marriage for and what kind of spouse you need. What you want in a spouse is a person who gets what God is doing in your life. Paul refers to this in Philippians as the good work he began in you that he will bring to completion. So what is that good work? Well, really, you're a shadow of who you're supposed to be. The people in your life are on their way, and you get glimpses of who they're becoming, but all of us are works in progress as the Holy Spirit shapes us. My family comes from the highlands of Scotland, and I've spent some time there over the years 
They don't have great weather in Scotland, I have to tell you. They have great food, but they don't have great weather. Okay, they don't have great food either. They have neither great food nor great weather. So it's not sunny in Scotland, or most of the time it's not sunny. What you find are lots of hills and mountains that are covered in cloud a lot of the time. But on those days when you're walking through them, you still get glimpses, and they're incredible. All of us are like that. Every so often, the clouds part, and you can see the glorious, wonderful thing that God is making you into and making other people around you into. And then the clouds roll back in, our bad habits and our sins roll back in, and they obscure who we really are in Christ. Here's what we need. First of all, we need Christian community. We need fellowship, brothers and sisters who will not only love you for what you are, but who are excited for what God is making you into. And so Christian marriage is an intense form of that kind of fellowship. And the larger fellowship we're a part of in the church is a community of mutual submission, I want to call it. And there's a question embedded in this sermon on marriage, which I hope we'll come back to, and that is, how are we building that kind of community at Courtright? How do our marriages, how does our singleness, how do our families all feed into that community of mutual submission? Are we intent upon that? How could we do more? So Christian marriage is itself this intense form of that larger fellowship I love you, and I'm excited about what God is making you into, we might say to our spouse. And I want to partner with Jesus in helping you grow in grace and become more like that. And so someday we'll stand before the throne of God, and all the clouds will disperse, and we will shine. And then we'll know that's the purpose of Christian marriage. So let's bring it back down to earth. Two practical implications of this. First of all, you should get into marriage expecting conflict. Sometimes I quote Stanley Hauravas, who's been known to say, you always marry the wrong person. And what he means by that is that you get into a marriage and you have a certain idea, but your spouse will change and your expectations will not be met. And so when you enter a marriage, you should expect conflict. You're not going to start wondering if you married the right person when you fight with your spouse. If you're married, instead you have to confront what's wrong with you like you will have to in no other relationship. You're going to need to stop being in denial. You can expect the conflict, and it has to be done speaking the truth in love, as Paul says earlier in Ephesians. Now, this is one of the places where the work of change in your life can really happen, if it's going to happen at all. You can think of marriage as being like a gem tumbler. Do you know what that is? It's this device that if you put two rough stones in it, and you use the tumbler, they tumble around and they knock the rough edges off of each other over and over and over again until they finally come out as something smooth, something beautiful. A second practical implication, 
Who are you going to choose to marry? People sometimes say to me, and they said this to me a lot when I was a young adults pastor in Toronto uh, 20 years ago, shouldn't I be attracted, like physically attracted to the person I marry? Yeah, sure, of course, but also go for a bigger attraction. Why not be attracted even more to something that lasts, that gets stronger rather than weaker as you age? Instead of choosing people on the basis of their looks, how cool they are, how funny they are, their connections, their money, you need to find someone who can be your best friend and your most trusted counselor. And so when you walk into a room and you rule out seven out of ten people there because you're focused on the shallow things, you're actually leaving your best prospects behind at the first cut. So be wise as you look for a marriage partner. Think long-term. See it through God's eyes. Marriage shapes, cleanses, and purifies you. Marriage also supplements, and this is where we get controversial. Brian, I need one of those potatoes, and it's going to be hot. We have a talkback session coming up on October the 18th in two weeks, and I encourage you to bring questions about marriage, about this passage, and and next week may be equally controversial. When it says here that wives should submit to their husbands and husbands should love their wives, we have to notice that there's a difference. We can't simply sidestep that. Now, our culture denies that there's a difference between men and women, but Christian marriage takes the difference seriously and says you need to be supplemented by another. There's a scene from the movie Jerry Maguire that is consistently ranked as one of the top all-time romantic moments in Hollywood film. In that scene, Tom Cruise tells Renee Zellweger that she completes him. Now, usually I raise concerns about that claim, but in a way, Tom Cruise is right when he says that. He does need her. So what is male headship then? It's hard to say. Paul does not get into the details here. That's important. He leaves us to work it out. But it is a particular kind of leadership. Now, men, like women, are confused about their role in our world. Things have changed. I don't believe that our grandparents had it right, but I also don't believe that headship is out of date. Husbands and fathers need to be leaders. They have to live up to their God-given authority, and they need the respect of their wives. But let's be really, really clear that headship cannot be mistaken for the power to get your own way. It is rooted in a mutual submission out of reverence for Christ, and it's only ultimately the authority to love like Jesus loved. Now, I'm sure there are husbands out there who have quoted Ephesians 5, 24, to win an argument. But if you think about it, that's a double-edged sword. Imagine a disagreement between a husband and a wife. You have some money to spare in your marriage, and the choice is between spending it on a new big-screen television or putting it into your savings, into an RSP. And in this scenario, the husband wants the RSP, and the wife wants the TV. And so he says to her, look, you're supposed to submit to me. We're getting the RSP. But she can turn right around and say, hello, Ephesians 5, 25, 
you're supposed to die for me like Jesus did. And when you're gone, darling, I'm going to really enjoy watching Netflix on my new 75-inch TV. So neither one can trump the other. The husband's job is to put his wife's interest first. He loves, she submits. He loves, she submits. Do you get a sense of how good that could be? In the end, they're both submitting to each other out of reverence for Jesus. Every married person I've talked to recently about these challenges says that when they are faced with a big disagreement, it, get, it gets worked out over time in a cycle of submission and forgiveness. It takes the grace of Jesus most of all and the empowering presence of the Spirit to avoid a darker cycle, one of resistance and recrimination and resentment. So the third question I wanted us to ask from the outset is what does marriage need? Well, you are going to need a Holy Spirit gospel-based ability to love like this. This whole passage we read actually begins in verse 18, if you were to know Greek grammar and read it in the original language. And in verse 18, it says, instead, instead of what it's talked about before, these signposts of pathways we're not supposed to go down, instead, it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. John, in chapter 16 of his gospel, says, when the Spirit comes, he will take what you, and he's quoting Jesus here, what Jesus, Jesus says, what you know of me, and the Spirit will glorify me. So the Holy Spirit takes what you know in your head, what Jesus did for you at the cross, and he makes it come alive for you. He makes it real. It becomes a fire in your soul. You're always singing about it in your heart. You're amazed at his grace, and you have this love and joy that springs up from that. That's verse 21. That's the part that refers to reverence for Christ. And only as the Holy Spirit makes that real in your life will you be able to submit like this. And then in verse 22, Paul starts into the specifics for marriage. And next week, we'll see about how that specifically relates to families, children and parents, slaves and masters. Here he's talking about having the fullness of the Spirit, having your soul full. So marriage will never work unless you know God's love deeply. If you don't, you aren't going to be able to do what God is calling you to do in marriage. If you love God first, you'll be able to love your spouse better. So Tom Cruise was wrong. Marriage does not complete us. Only God does that as, as the full measure of Jesus Christ fills us. If you're looking to your spouse for contentment, then when you go through the inevitable hard times and they don't give you what you need, you're not going to make it. But if you love God more than your spouse, then you'll have the resources to love your spouse too. You'll never be able to submit to each other in the covenant of marriage unless you can love your spouse when they're preoccupied, when they're depressed, when they're sick, when they're not at all being the spouse they should be. But if you get your love from God, you can make it through. Because you see, Jesus Christ was the perfect spouse. He loved us first and 
even when we were unfaithful, when we left him, he did not reject us. He did not cut us off from his love. No, instead, he came after us. We betrayed him, and yet he willingly went to the cross for us. He gave everything up for us. And through his death came resurrection, came hope, came our new life together as his body, the church. And that's the fourth question I wanted to try to answer this morning. What does marriage show us? Well, Paul says that Christ is like a husband and we, the church, are his bride. And it's this profound mystery through which the greatest hope comes to us. That one day at the end of time, at the wedding banquet of the Lamb, it says in Revelation, we will be united to Christ truly, completely. And that's when Tom Cruise's line will really come in handy. That will be the ultimate wholeness and completeness that we've always longed for and gone seeking in so many dead ends. Then we will be complete. For now we see only as a reflection in a mirror. Then we shall be face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known by God. And human marriage is only a foretaste of that fulfillment. The hope of the resurrection enables us to put marriage and to put singleness in their proper places. Our destiny is to enjoy full communion and union with God. And that's what we are created for, and that is where we're going. And so I want to quote from Revelation and say, Hallelujah, for our God, the Lord Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. That is us, his church. We put on his clothing. It covers us. In him, we know who we are. We are beautiful. We are beloved. We are radiant. We are his church together forevermore. Amen.